Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 12th, 2021, and um, headlines are dominated still by the ongoing climate crisis. COVID is in the headlines, of course. Uh, but the other thing that uh, caught my attention this morning uh, is the resignation of the top U.S. general in Afghanistan. I'm not really surprised he's resigning since the Americans are withdrawing. Uh, the Biden speech on Afghanistan in which he announced his withdrawal um, is dividing people uh, uh, on the Hill. They suggest that, it, it, that it's the right thing to do on CNN, um, uh, one... Uh, one analyst, Peter Bergen, suggested it's the worst speech of Biden's presidency. I was also listening to Meet the Press at the weekend, and Adam Kinzinger, American uh, politician, House of Representatives uh, guy, uh, who's been a big critic of um, of Trump, I thought was kind of absurd in his suggestion that somehow the invasion of uh, Afghanistan was justified in getting rid of the Taliban and that the whole point of the war uh, hadn't been a complete and utter failure. I'm not convinced by that. Um, certainly, American uh, involvement in Afghanistan and the war, quote-unquote, on the Taliban, I think, is part of a, an ongoing narrative in terms of American hostility uh, both physical and intellectual, towards Islam. So I thought it'd be good. We've had a number of shows on Islam. I thought it'd be good to catch up with one of America's foremost analysts uh, um, of Islam, both in historical and contemporary terms. as uh, the author of, of, of a couple of particularly well-acclaimed books, uh, one called uh, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, and another book, uh, the New Arabs, How the Millennial Generation is Changing the Middle East. Uh, he's also a very uh, prolific blogger and media commentator. Many of you will be familiar with his blog and his appearance on, on, on different shows. Uh, one, can we fit this latest chapter? I'm not sure if it's a chapter, the end of a chapter on the invasion of Afghanistan into American hostility and misunderstanding of Islam? Well, certainly uh, there is a lot of hostility towards Islam and misunderstanding of it. Um, I, I think uh, the American public um, isn't uh, entirely um, aware uh, that all the Afghans are Muslim. <laughs> whether they're Taliban or not, and the Taliban are, a, in my view, a cult-like uh, movement within Islam uh, that m most Muslims are uncomfortable with. Uh, and so I think there, there, there was always a difficulty in um, making that distinction. You know, Mahmoud Mamdani has a book, uh, Good Muslims, Bad Muslims, uh, uh, that, that, that treats this kind of dichotomy. Uh, your book, uh, Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires, I've been reading it this, this, this morning. Um, it's extremely erudite and, re and, 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 uh, uh, and readable at the same time. So congratulations on that. It's also 
in its own way, and you know this, uh, even if you're a, a distinguished historian also uh, at the University of Michigan, um, it's also a polemic. It's a reminder, I think, to American audiences that Muhammad was not a member of the Taliban. He wasn't uh, a, 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 a jihad manic uh, warrior in the Arabian desert. Uh, introduce our, our audience, one to Muhammad, because many of them uh, won't have read your book and won't be familiar with his story. Right. So Muhammad was the founder of the Muslim religion. Uh, he lived um, in the early 600s of the Common Era, uh, some six centuries after Christ, uh, at the time of, of the late Roman Empire. Uh, and um, he uh, began his career, according to Muslim tradition, and as far as we can tell from the Quran, by preaching in a small sanctuary city in Western Arabia, uh, uh, Mecca. And he, his initial message was one of a strict monotheism, an opposition to the remnants of paganism in his region, but also standing up for the poor, the oppressed, the orphan uh, in society who uh, he felt people weren't taking care of them properly. Uh, and uh, yet another plank of his, uh, of his uh, platform was uh, in civil society, in relations with other human beings, uh, when they taunt you, when they humiliate you, when they harass you, uh, to reply to them, wishing them, praying for peace and security for them, wishing them good, uh, returning uh, evil with good. Uh, and uh, this aspect of uh, the Prophet's mission, which is all through the Quran, uh, has not only not been highlighted in uh, Western treatments of his life, uh, but uh, often was downplayed by the later Muslim empires who after all wanted to use the Quran as uh, an authorization uh, for their conquests. Um, we've had a show actually on the Quran in particular. I I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Sumbul Ali Karamali, uh, she has a nice book out, Demystifying Sharia, what it is, how it works, and why it's not taking over our country. Uh, it's it's um, perhaps less scholarly than your work, but it, it also is in the business of trying to make sense in historical terms of the Quran. Why has the Quran, in your, in your view, one, become such a a polemical text. I guess all these religious texts, whether it's the Bible or the Quran, are always going to be polemical. But what's so particularly polemical about the Quran? Well, I think there's something peculiar about uh, the European and, and North American reception of the Quran. Uh, you know, there are a lot of scholars of the Buddhist uh, sutras, the scriptures, uh, uh, who, who write about them in a dispassionate way or even a positive way. Uh, and I, I think, you know, a, a text like the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism is treated uh, respectfully in academia. Uh, the Quran, in contrast, is roundly hated. I think, <laughs> by, by, 
by virtue of mildly one yes. mildly uh. no well that it is that is it is hated by you know evangelical christians you can understand their competitors but inside academia well, are they compare i mean just uh, i want to come back to your main theme but are they competitors are they, they're all part of the same tradition and and wouldn't it be fair to say that the quran and muhammad very much presents itself and them and himself and itself in the context of the broader narrative of the the, the monotheistic faiths uh, of judaism and christianity well the, the quran addresses jews and christians and says our god and your god is one god uh, the, evangelical, the evangelicals do not accept this assertion. Uh, and um, sure, but I mean, they're competitors for souls. Uh, they're, they're, it's a, they're, they're two movements that are missionary movements. Uh, so I'm just saying I could understand how uh, uh, an evangelical could have a polemical attitude towards the Quran. But I think that this negativity towards the book pervades you know, uh, the intellectual classes as well, the, the university scholars, uh, a dispassionate treatment of it is very rare. What about Muhammad himself? A dispassionate um, treatment of him is also equally rare. We, of course, have the, the, the Rushdie story. Uh, we have your book. What is it about Muhammad that makes him so divisive? Reading your book seems to me that the two schools are, are, are on him You're, you you see him as a peacemaker as a as a bridge builder uh, as an intellectual disruptor but not a military man others see him in a more military sense is that the key dis division on muhammad well i think it's certainly the case that the 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 western tradition of writing about muhammad has focused on him as a militant uh and um I mean, it, it is uh, odd because he's no more militant than the church fathers were, uh, and uh, and you uh, and and you suggest in your book that a lot of his thinking was very uh, very much bound up with church fathers, and that there's a clear relation between his work and and his thinking and the city of God and Augustine. Yeah, well, I think at the least, you know, the themes that uh, Augustine took up in Latin had echoes in, in the Byzantine uh, East and, and, and were part of the zeitgeist uh, that Muhammad lived in. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think, you know, he, he may have been at war six afternoons in his life. Uh, as you say, he, he wasn't a professional military man. He was a merchant who ended up in a situation where the, the community in, in Medina had to defend itself. But uh, these uh, verses about war are, to be fair, trumpeted by militant Muslims, and so that's given it a certain cast. And then Westerners have, have long felt um, insecure about them. Uh, but th th it's a very small proportion of the Quran that has anything to do with warfare. Even that uh, says things like, well, if, if your enemy sues for peace, you have to accept it. So. Uh, you know, you would never say that if you were interested in aggressive war, because the enemy would always sue for peace. It's only if you were fighting a defensive war that that, that uh, precept even makes sense. Uh, so, I, you know, the fact is, uh, Montgomery Watt, the great scholar of Islam, suggested that, uh, you know, Muslim civilization and, and Christian and Jewish civilizations um, are mirror images of one another, but 
as in a as in a, a carnival mirror, it's slightly distorted. It's not the same proportions, and that that has gotten people's hackles up. Uh, one we had again. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. The Scot, uh, the Turkish historian Mustafa Akyol on the the show recently. He has a new book out, "Reopening Muslim Minds: A Return to Reason, Freedom, and, and Tolerance." Where do you stand on uh, this narrative of, of 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 Islam needing to go back to its founding principles? Um, uh, we've also had, uh, in, in, in dramatic contrast, Ayan Hirsi Ali on the show, a very controversial thinker, her new book, Prey, Heretic, Infidel, suggesting that there never was any, any tolerant tradition to go back to. Do, do you see this tradition as in need of being reinvestigated to go back to original principles? Well, personally, I think that's kind of a trope. Uh, you know, uh, European Christians for the last 500 years have been trying to go back to original principles one way or another as well. Uh, you know, religious traditions are what people make of them. And uh, everybody is always in the present. They draw upon the past for various purposes. I think that this uh, this question is being raised because Islam is being put on this under the sign of militancy because there are admittedly militant groups in the Muslim world. But are there uh, are they really so different from militant groups elsewhere in the world? and and is there more violence in the Muslim world than any place else? I mean, south uh, Southeast Asia has had, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, the the, uh, the Indonesian uh, uh, genocide uh, of 1965, uh, in which a million and a half people were killed. Uh, I, I think there's something peculiar about the way that the Middle East and the Muslim world are viewed um, in the West, such that this question then is posed, well, how, how could you reshape Islam? How could you make it better? And People in the Middle East themselves and and and, and the Muslim world more generally uh, have been through a number of crises in the past uh, two or three hundred years. Uh, they've been, for the most part, colonized by the Europeans uh, and had their lives turned upside down. Their laws changed all around. Their governmental systems imposed on them uh, by colonialism, which they finally began to get rid of in the mid 20th century, but then there's neo-colonialism, so it came back in various ways. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, there's a great deal of intellectual ferment in the region and this uh, impulse to go back to founding principles or to get back past the accretions of the medieval glosses and commentaries uh, is widespread. But again, I think it's a trope. I think it, it's, it's uh, when you say it's a trope, you mean it's a it's a lie, it's misleading, it's the wrong thing to think about. No, it's just a way. It's a, it's a it's a way of thinking. It's a convention which you don't think is very valuable. Um, one, you were actually introduced to me by your Michigan colleague David Potter. He has a new book out, "Disruption: Why Things Change," and. The headline uh, in LitHub for the show said, David Potter, on what Lenin and Luther can teach us about our age of disruption. Was Muhammad a disruptor in the same way as Luther was in intellectual terms or perhaps even Lenin? Oh, big time. 
uh, uh, Muhammad uh, uh, shifted things all around. Uh, and um, I think in, in ways that he, he himself probably couldn't have foreseen. Uh, no, he lived at a time when uh, the uh, Eastern Roman Empire and the uh, Sasanian Iranian Empire uh, were at war. They, they fought a nearly quarter century war with one another, which was ruinous. Uh, it was a horrible war and uh, uh, ruined the economies of both empires. Uh, and uh, uh, I think in many ways, uh, the Quran is a Roma clay uh, for that war. It is responding to it and, uh, and its dislocations and its violence. Uh, and you know, it was also a time when uh, Christianity, uh, the, the Rome, Rome, Christianity be, had become the, the um, religion of state for the Roman Empire. But Roman, Roman citizens were deeply divided over which kind of Christianity to follow. Uh, and there were major uh, heresies and debates uh, over doctrine uh, that, again, produced a great deal of internal violence, which Muhammad reacted against. Uh, and the Zoroastrian Empire in, in Iran uh, also had, had had these problems. And so I think Muhammad's emphasis on a simple belief in the one God, uh, you know, the, 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 the almost Ptolemaic kind of uh, uh, theology of the Christians didn't appeal to Muhammad, and he denounces uh, fights over these kinds of issues. Uh, at one point, the Quran says, you know, if you want to uh, fight over which sect, which doctrine is better, which religion is better, why don't you compete in seeing who can do the greatest good in the world? Uh, that division, um, one, of course, now is understood by lay people like myself as the division uh, in terms of making sense of the legacy of, uh, of Muhammad, the, the division between the, the Sunni and the Shia traditions. We had the Lebanese journalist, I'm sure you're very familiar with her work, Kim Khatas on the show recently. Wonderful book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry that unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. She argues, and I'm curious as to your take on this, that this whole Shia Sunni split needs to be understood not in religious terms, but in terms of the triangle of the United States, Iran, and, and, and Saudi Arabia, with us being the people of the Middle East in particular, being caught in the middle of this. Do you share Khatas's position on the, 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 the geopolitics of the Sunni-Shia split? Well, Kim Khatas is a, a keen observer of the region, and uh, uh, I, I think uh, reading her is always to the good. What I would say as a, as a social historian is just that all religious conflicts are underpinned by uh, social uh, and economic and, and political conflicts. Uh, and typically those conflicts are worked into religious terms. I mean, nobody goes out and, and kills another person over historical events that happened 1400 years ago. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's just not the case. and. And, and Sunni and Shia Muslims have often lived together in relative harmony, uh, but there are moments when there's a, a, a political vacuum and politicians uh, 
see gains for themselves in demonizing one group and in, in, in mobilizing their own. Uh, you know, if, if you're trying to, um, uh, to succeed in, in politics and to get a big following, making your people afraid of somebody and then representing yourself as the one who can save them from that uh, demon uh, is, is a tried and true Demon, I mean, some people have made careers uh, out of making sense of this. Uh, Edward Said's Orientalism, of course, makes sense of the Middle East in that context. Yes. So uh, we, we saw in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was overthrown, uh, there were forces that emerged that de you know, among Sunnis that demonized the Shiites, among Shiites that demonized the Sunnis. Uh, the United States, having created this political vacuum and having played favorites with the Shiites in I I Iraq, was implicated in, in, uh, in this polarization, uh, but it, it's not intrinsic to religion. And if you, you know, I'm a historian, so you go back and read uh, the consular reports from U.S. Uh, embassy in, in, in Baghdad back in the 50s and 60s, there is virtually no mention of Sunni and Shia as a problem in Iraq. In that so you really, so you're not, you're not in... Um... You're not really in disagreement with Qatas on this. You see it as being politically manufactured in some way. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't confine it to the Iran-Saudi struggle. Right. Um, well, maybe in a contemporary sense, uh, one uh, alongside being a historian, you're a very active commentator on contemporary politics in your uh, inform your excellent informed comment blog, both in the Middle East and the United States. Uh, I'm curious as to your take on contemporary American policy in the Middle East. Uh, Khatas wrote the book, The Secretary, about her travels with Hillary Clinton into, the, into uh, Beirut and, and American power. She's quite critical, I think, of Clinton. We had uh, the journalist, uh, the, the anti-Israel, well, the anti-Zionist uh, American Jewish journalist, Peter Beinart, on the show recently. But he wrote a book very much in support of... Um, of the American invasion of Iraq called The Good Fight. Later this week, I've actually got Robert Draper on the show talking about um, how Bush uh, Bush Jr. Took, uh, took America into the Iraq war. I'm curious, I, I would describe you probably to the left of the traditional American liberal. To what extent do you think um, characters like Clinton and Beinhardt are responsible for the catastrophe of American policy in the Middle East? Well, I, I think certainly the, the people who supported the Iraq war uh, did the United States no favors. This was the greatest debacle in American foreign policy, uh, perhaps ever. Uh, and which, is, which, is, which is saying a lot since there have been many debacles, right? Yes, yes, but I, I, I don't say this lightly. Um, it, uh, it created enormous contradictions for U.S. policy in the region. Uh, it, it harmed the United States. When it's all said and done, it will have cost us six or seven trillion dollars, which uh, we could ill afford uh, given the other crises we're facing. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it, it ups upset the apple cart in the entire region so that Poor Barack Obama, who wanted nothing more than the, never to hear the word middle, the phrase Middle East again, uh, was drawn back in because of the rise of ISIL, which was a direct result of the U.S. Uh, intervention there, and it was all on false pre pretenses. There, the, the Iraq was uh, 
at least implicitly and sometimes explicitly tied to the 9-11 attacks, which it had nothing to do with. And, and of course, the, the secular Ba'ath regime hated al-Qaeda and uh, hunted down its adherents in Iraq. Uh, and uh, and then it was alleged that Iraq had advanced weapons programs, which it did not. It was a poor, it, was, it had been reduced to a fourth world estate by, by uh, UN and US sanctions. So it, it was abject, it was wretched. It, it posed no threat to the United States. Uh, it, it had nothing to do with 9-11. There was no reason to attack it, much less to militarily occupy it for eight and a half years and try to shape its society. Uh, it was a disaster, uh, and it, it was hubris on the part of the Bush administration. To put uh, it mildly, yes. Uh, you, yeah. you say one, poor Barack Obama, but he, 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 he's not free of blame. Um, we, uh, sorry, we, uh, uh, I, I, for another show, my How to Fix Democracy show, I interviewed Ben Rhodes, uh, one of uh, Obama's major foreign policy advisors. He has a new book out, After the Fall. And last year, I had the CNN journalist Cl Clarissa Ward on the show. who did a lot of work in the Syrian civil war. She has uh, this to say about Rhodes uh, and, I guess, the Obama administration about the Syrian war. He said, she writes, near the end of 2016, as the Russian bombs were raining down on Aleppo and the eastern part of the city was about to fall to the regime, I felt a familiar ray, a flash of rage and despair. I wrote an email to Ben Rhodes, now Obama's point man on the Syrian conflict. Dear Ben, hope you are sleeping well as Aleppo burns. Thank goodness we have the Russians to sort it all out. He never replied. I actually brought this up with, uh, with Rhodes uh, when, uh, when we talked, and he wasn't particularly happy with that. I think he's very embarrassed with what Ward wrote. Um, to what extent, though, can the the blame for this broader catastrophe of American policy in the Middle East from Israel to Iraq to Afghanistan to Syria be blamed both on left on the left and the right of American politics. We can't blame everything on, on, on the junior Bush, can we? Well, no, of course not. But, but nevertheless, the fact is that Al Gore would not have invaded Iraq. Uh, and, um, Mm. Uh, and, and that was a project of Bush uh, and, and the people around him, of Dick Cheney. Because America. of his obsession with Hussein's attempt to assassinate his father, you think? We have no idea. You know, it's one of the problems with the United States. It's supposed to be a democracy, uh, but we, we don't. The, the government is very opaque. Uh I, w I was once called for consultations with the, the Congress, um, and you know they take you off to a foreign city and and you, you have a conference with them and, and you give them a talk uh, in the midst of the Iraq War. Uh, and uh, at one point, a conservative congressman uh, who was an intelligent person turned to me and said, "Well, Professor Cole, the thing that I can't understand, I wish you would just explain it to us, is why are we in Iraq?" <laughs> I fell off my chair. I thought, I'm a Midwestern college professor. You're the U.S. government. You tell me why we're in Iraq. The Congress didn't know. Bush didn't tell them why we were there. They couldn't, they couldn't get a briefing from him on it. Uh, and we still don't know. Uh, we, we don't know. Uh, we, don't, we don't have 
inside information on why they did this. Uh, I think for Cheney, it certainly had something to do with petroleum. It's not a, a glib kind of thing of war for oil, but I think Cheney was um, uh, disturbed that uh, the sanctions on Iraq meant that a, a lot of black gold was was under the ground and, and U.S. corporations didn't have access to it. And this was before fracking. Uh, and so uh, the, the smaller uh, oil companies and oil service companies were hungry and, and lean and, and there weren't new finds a lot. So all that stuff being in Iraq, I think, annoyed him. Uh, and one way to get the sanctions off would be to uh, do regime change so that then the Congress wouldn't have a problem taking the sanctions off. When you bring up oil, let's. I'd like you to step back as a historian, take the broader view. Uh, in your informed comment blog, uh, you wrote, uh, I mean, yesterday or the day before, one of your headlines from, from a BBC News report, gasoline and, cl- and coal's climate freak show. Fire NATO, 1 billion dead marine animals and Earth's all-time record heat. That's, of course, from California. We've talked about that in the show. You also had a piece last week about Kuwait being the hottest place on Earth. Um, To what extent are these two crises, these two huge failures of American policy in the Middle East and the climate catastrophe, how are they bound up with one another? Well, petroleum uh, binds them. Uh, The United States, uh, for various reasons, uh, became a petroleum-using society. Uh, in the early 20th century, and, and petroleum was the basis for, uh, for Western power, uh, and uh, the United States had a great deal of it itself, but its allies didn't necessarily. And in uh, 1912, the, the, the British Navy switched to petroleum uh, to fuel the, the, uh, its, its naval fleet, uh, uh, which at the time was you know, the, the world's greatest superpower, uh, and so needed since Britain didn't have petroleum, it needed access to uh, to Abadan in Iran uh, and and to various uh, petroleum fields, uh, and the United States inherited that kind of solicitousness about uh, uh, having control of, uh, of of petroleum. As in the Cold War, again, the United States didn't need the uh, to import petroleum itself, but it, it needed to make sure that. Post-war France and Britain and Germany, uh, which were poor and and weak, uh, had access to cheap petroleum from the Middle East uh, in order to fight off uh, the communists and uh, uh, win the Cold War. And so the the U.S. invasion of Lebanon in 1958 had to do with an oil pipeline from Iraq. Uh, The U.S. intervened in Syria uh, over uh, the pipeline. Uh, it, uh, uh, and, and then the Gulf and, and, and Iraq wars were at least somewhat implicated. Uh, the, the, the troubles that Iran, the U.S. has had with Iran. Uh, these things, the U.S. You know, investment in the Middle East, and if you think about it, it's peculiar because uh, Latin America is is much more important in most ways, but we're not. We don't ever hear about Latin America on our on our news uh, program. I know, we, and we don't talk about it. And actually, it's rather shameful. I was thinking about that. I don't have enough shows on Latin America. We need to have more, perhaps fewer, on the Middle East. 
Finally, Juan, you're pretty outspoken um, on on the uh, Arab-Israeli situation. Uh, you've written a number of pieces about um, human rights abuses uh, uh, in Israel. Uh, one of your, your headlines is on war crimes in informed content. How does Israel and American or seemingly blind support for, for Israel over the last 50 or 60 years, how does this fit into the narrative of the crisis, both of the environment and of uh, American foreign policy? Well, the big investment that the United States made in petroleum for its transportation system and that of its allies uh, in the Cold War, you know, translated into an unwillingness to uh, acknowledge the dangers of, of, uh, of the climate emergency when it became clear to scientists uh, way back in the 1970s uh, that we were putting up so much uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that it, it would change uh, the climate. Uh, and and uh, the government uh, and, and big corporations both were extremely resistant uh, to these findings and, and actively attempted to fool the public about the dire situation that was being created on these security grounds. But I think for a lot of Washington politicians, uh, Israel is is a, a kind of uh, aircraft carrier for the United States in the Middle East. Uh, and there's the hope that were the petroleum supplies to be in danger, uh, Israeli intelligence would help us to uh, uh, help us to deal with with any crisis, uh, and uh, I, I think you know there are people who care about Israelis who care about uh, the, the project of of the Zionist state, but I think for most Washington politicians, it's it's just they they think of it as a security asset. Very controversial and erudite as ever, like your your work, One Coles Muhammad. Uh, it was written a couple of years ago, still essential reading, as well as his other. One of his other books, um, uh, The New Arabs. Actually, we didn't talk enough about that. Uh, one, maybe you'll come back on the show to talk about that. Uh, I assume you're in Michigan at the moment in these strange kind of post-COVID times. Is that right? Yes. I, I often, uh, in recent years, I've been going to Athens in the summer to work on my Greek, but I, I couldn't go. Uh, oh, uh, well, next year, one. Maybe we'll do the, the show next year in Athens. I love that town, yeah. too. Um Finally, uh, in addition to your books, you've you are uh, quite a controversial thinker. You're deeply well read in in in, in both the history and the politics of, of the Near East, um, and uh, obviously of the Islamic world. What other books, in addition to yours, would you suggest people read as an introduction? You, you spoke quite sympathetically of Khatas's book. Uh, what else? Well, I think uh, my colleague at the University of Chicago, Fred Donner, has a wonderful book uh, called Muhammad and the Believers, uh, which goes into the post-Muhammad period much more than I did. Uh, and uh, that's that's one uh, that I would recommend. Um, and um, uh, What about a, a sort of a contemporary book about this deeply disturbed and disturbing relationship between America and the Islamic world? Yeah, I'd have to give that some thought. You know, I, 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 I'm sorry not to have it on the tip of my tongue to, to recommend people, but I, a lot of my research in the contemporary Middle East is quite specialized, so I don't, I don't want to recommend them a $150 book. Uh, but um, uh, there are uh, keen observers of, of, of the region uh, that, that I think well of, uh, and uh, 
perhaps uh, this is something we can email about and I can get you. A yeah. And I apologize. One, usually I cheat in my shows and tell and, and give people the, uh, the question in advance. So they have a book ready. And I didn't do that with you. So that's my fault, not yours. One Carl, real honor to have you on the show. You are, uh, you are controversial and erudite and exactly the kind of guy who I think, uh, we love to have on your show. And this is what our audience wants. So Thank you so much. Keep well, keep safe, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thanks so much.